0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Health or Consequences, the monthly Massachusetts health policy podcast by Commonwealth Magazine and Mass Inc. I'm John McDonough from the Harvard Chan School of Public Health in Boston, uh, joined by my co-host Paul Hattis of the Lowne Institute. And today we are happy and pleased to welcome back to our program David Seltz who is the executive director of the Massachusetts Health Policy Commission. Uh, David has been in that role since 2012, the first and the only executive director of the compelling organization that looks at everything around costs and other factors of the Massachusetts healthcare system. Uh, Prior to that role, he worked for Governor Deval Patrick as a health policy advisor, and before that, the uh, State Senate President, Therese Murray, as her chief policy advisor. So an extraordinary
1: background for such a young guy. And we're thrilled to have you back. Welcome back, David. Uh, thanks so much, John. It's great to be back and uh, uh, not so young anymore. I'm actually uh, coming up on my 20 my year anniversary in state government, um, but very pleased to be able to, to chat with you both today. Time flies when you're
0: having fun, that's for sure. So I will start out with the first question. So the Health Policy Commission recently went through its annual round of uh, cost trends reporting and public hearing with witnesses, including uh, the governor and the attorney general, and putting out, as always, an excellent and outstanding uh, report on where we are in Massachusetts. Uh, It seems that Concerns about healthcare spending growth in the state and particularly affordability for families remain key worries. So let's just start out with kind of a big question Are we winning the battle? Are we winning the war on healthcare costs or not? And also, a related question Are other states that have copied the Massachusetts path now leaping forward ahead of us, or are we still at the front of the parade in terms of state cost control?
1: Uh, Thanks, John. And and thank you again for for having me on. This is really kind of a perfect timing to be able to to have this this conversation with you both because, as you mentioned, we uh, released our annual report earlier this September and and just last month held our 11th annual cost trends hearings, which really is kind of our unique, you know, checkup every year about, about how our healthcare system is performing. And so, you know, I think some of the major themes that came through for me at the hearing was really around Massachusetts residents and families struggling with the affordability of health care. You know, we started the day at the hearing um, by doing something we, we hadn't quite done in this fashion before to cost trends hearings. We invited uh, leaders and organizers from communities across Massachusetts to share their everyday perspective about how uh, families, individuals, residents are struggling with health care costs. And that testimony was both powerful and sobering, because I think what we heard was that many Massachusetts families are facing a really difficult trade-off in their decisions every single day, whether to be able to pay for their heating bill or go to the grocery store versus being able to afford to fill a needed prescription. Too many Massachusetts residents uh, by a survey a few years ago, nearly half of adults, said that they are foregoing necessary care due to the cost of care. I think this is really important because, John, as you know, we, we started this journey in Massachusetts really around healthcare access and un- universal access to care. And we made that a centerpiece in Massachusetts of our reform in 2006 to get everyone into affordable health insurance. And what we're seeing today is that even for people who do have health insurance, they're unable to afford the care that they need. And so what we have is a growing population of functionally uninsured residents. These delays, when people forego the care that they need, that leads to an exacerbation of health conditions that can lead to unnecessary emergency department use and hospitalizations and more costly care in the long run and worse health outcomes. The second thing I think we heard from the hearing, which we also see in the data, is that certain residents, such as those with, with lower income and Black and Hispanic residents, experience even disproportionately higher affordability challenges, which can lead to uh, a persistent health inequities. So. In some from the hearing, I, I I do feel like we are at an inflection point of this healthcare reform journey, and that there needs to be action to, to update the tools and levers in order for us to maintain our position as a national leader. So you mentioned about other states and, and other states and how they may be leapfrogging Massachusetts. And we see across the country, um, one, uh, a really encouraging trend that many states are adopting uh, the framework that we have put in place in Massachusetts, but as they're doing that, they're learning lessons from our experience, and in some cases, they're going beyond what was initially part of our our legislation. And there, there are a number of different areas um, that I could touch on here, but let me just let me just pick one area, and then hopefully we can we can touch on some of the others in the course of the conversation. One area that that states across this country have been really active on. Is oversight and accountability for the pharmaceutical sector. Uh, pharmaceutical spending is the biggest driver of healthcare spending. I mean, and by that, I mean it's growing the fastest in terms of uh, all sectors of, of healthcare spending. And state policymakers across this country, and I'm talking red states, purple states, blue states, they are advancing bills uh, focused on the rising cost of prescription drugs. I just looked this up um, before talking to you. But just this year in calendar year 2023, as of September, 49 bills have become law in 29 states on pharmaceutical pricing and access issues, uh, including the oversight of uh, pharmacy benefit managers. In May, Minnesota became the seventh state to establish a prescription drug affordability board. And so this has been a trend across this country and is one in which Massachusetts also needs to take action. I think this is an area where I'm optimistic that next year, Massachusetts will join many of these states who have, have already taken action on this issue. But that is one area that I wanted to mention up top.
2: David, hey, this is Paul Hannaes joining our three-way conversation. I want to add my words of welcome. And uh, we'll come back a little bit later, maybe to this optimistic hope that you have around pharma. Let me deal with something which seems a little bit more challenging, perhaps, though, you know, in terms of the drivers around affordability. and from the hearings, uh, those who were the president, yourself included, heard from the two CEOs, of uh, Mass Blue Cross and Point32, uh, Sarah Island Kane Hayes. Both of them, they said that one of their great worries is the reality they're facing, that when they have provider price negotiations, especially on the hospital side, just after pharma, in terms of the contribution of, of, of growth towards spending, uh, it appears that the benchmark or the discipline of the benchmark being in the room to try to reduce the rate increase requests they're getting is no longer there or at least functioning. Do you agree that that uh, maybe is happening or least you you observe or hear that that's happening? And what should the state do in response to that fact?
1: So, first of all, thanks, Paul. Um, and I do want to make a small technical clarification up top, which is to say... Okay that the benchmark is really a statewide measure of total healthcare expenditure growth across all health plans, private and public. It was not designed as a cap on individual provider contracts, but really I think is is a target that, you know, we should all be working towards, that everyone, the health plans, all of the providers should be working towards in good faith. So I'm not surprised that some providers will be requesting commercial rating increases in excess of the benchmark and in fact depending on the particular context of that healthcare provider and by that i mean what is their relative commercial pricing compared to peers the proportion of you know public payer patients that they serve their overall efficiency the impact that they have on total healthcare spending such a contract may not be as concerning as others again depending on that context and, and by the way, those are all the things that we look at when determining whether a performance improvement plan is appropriate. But all that being said, we do recommend changes to the benchmark process. To modernize and strengthen our approach. In order to ensure that all those market participants are continuing to work in good faith toward the shared goal. So let me just talk through a couple of those recommended changes. Sure. First, we need to update the metrics by which we identify healthcare providers for potential review by the HPC uh, in our performance improvement plan process. I I promise you, I won't get into the technical details here, but under the current process, uh, many provider types, including hospitals and specialists, are not referred to the HPC for review. I think your listeners may find it really surprising that hospitals are not directly referred to the HPC for review under the current performance improvement plan process. But that is the reality uh, in our current law that does need to be changed. Additionally, we think that um, in this referral process, there's an opportunity to take uh, into account more of those contextual, you know, differences that I mentioned, baseline spending, baseline pricing, population served, et cetera. Um, And then finally, we think that this list should become public. We recommend that the, the list of entities that are exceeding the benchmark in any given year should be something that is part of a public dialogue and conversation. Uh, originally in our law, that was set as a confidential list that the HPC reviews every year. And I think there was, I think, an appropriate concern um, that entities, if their names were shared publicly, you know, that the, the data may not be um, reliable enough and that organizations could be kind of misidentified in a public way that would have negative consequences. Well, we're 11 years into this. We have 11 years of experience of looking at this data and understanding this data and being able to contextualize this data. Why is this being kept from the public conversation? Okay, so a couple things about PIPS and review process. Second is um, we recommend that we follow the lead, again, in mentioning states that have gone beyond Massachusetts. Both Oregon and California have um, an option for financial penalties Uh, in addition to the performance improvement plan process. Again, to just strongly encourage uh, all market participants to keep their spending below the benchmark trend. I think, as you know, Paul, our current financial penalty is capped at at $500,000. I I don't know that that is a significant deterrence um, for organizations that have um, billions of dollars in annual revenue uh, to focus uh, intensely on bringing their trend down. And then finally, we recommend that there's an opportunity to complement all of this work on the healthcare cost growth benchmark with other benchmarks that are really focused on the experience of affordability and the experience of health equity. And so, you know, kind of taking together all of these changes would have, uh, would establish a a more comprehensive framework um, for setting goals, tracking progress, and keeping our collective selves accountable
0: to those goals. So, David, one item in your report particularly struck out to me. It was a uh, data point on the uh, shrinkage in the small employer health insurance market, companies under 50 who are providing health insurance to their workers. And according to the data from your report and elsewhere, the numbers have gone from 663,000 covered lives in 2010 to 385,000 covered lives. In 2021. So for for John Hurst from the Retailers Association, this is a uh, hair on fire moment, and it seems to me to be akin to a market collapse. Um, would you accept that characterization? And what does it mean? And what does it say to you?
1: Yeah, y- your listeners can't can't see me, but I am <laughs> nodding my head as you were were setting this that up. I, you know, I I think this is very striking and very concerning. And what we found in our report was that this decline is largely the result of an increase in the number of employees of these small businesses who are choosing not to take their insurance option offered. Well, why is that? Well, obviously, one primary reason is the insurance is unaffordable. Let me share just a few more stats on this. From 2012 to 2019, premiums for small business employees grew 27.5% while wages only grew 17%, so premium growth in this market is outpacing wage growth. And as small businesses, you know, understandably look to limit the impact of those premium increases, what are they doing? They're turning to high deductible health plans, shifting more of those costs onto their employees. And in the small group market, uh, the number of you know enrollees in high deductible health plans has doubled. Um, from like twenty twelve to twenty twenty one and now accounts for seventy two percent of small group enrollment. So it's clear from this data that we have a market that is losing enrollment where premium growth is outpacing wages, and that more and more the only solution is to turn to high deductible health plans. So to me, what this says is we need more affordable health insurance options for small businesses. The good news, on this front is that there actually are some very good uh, plan options available to small businesses through the state's uh, Health Connector for Business platform. Uh, This is a platform run by our Health Connector Exchange, and it has a specific platform for small businesses, which allows employers to shop among uh, commercial plans. And some of those premium levels are very competitive, um, even nationwide. So admittedly, though, I have to say the uptake enrollment in the Health Connector for Business platform uh, is relatively low, but nonetheless, I think this is an opportunity. Uh, Governor Healy highlighted this at the cost trends hearings. Uh, We had the executive director, Audrey Gasteyer, highlighting this opportunity for small businesses to be able to um, avail themselves of more affordable options. But I, I guess my last point I would say is that we do need to take some urgent action here to help stabilize this market. As you said, the declining enrollment I don't know that I would say it is uh, in collapse, but it is maybe collapsing or at least in in a spiral. And so how do we kind of turn around that spiral or at least stabilize? And to me, that goes beyond just um, the health connector for business, even though that's a great opportunity, we need to do the other recommendations that we have that actually get at the underlying drivers of healthcare costs. So let's look at provider pricing, let's look at hospital facility fees, let's look at health plan oversight, Let's look at all of these things, which we know are kind of the key to moderating the underlying drivers of cost growth.
2: David, let me uh, move you to reflect a little bit on some of the market dynamics of, you know, tied to expansions, rebuildings, affiliations something that seems to always be present in our healthcare marketplace here in Massachusetts. And what's been in the news lately is the proposed Dana-Farber project, where they're going to Uh, move from proposed by 2028 to build uh, up to maybe 300 bed new cancer hospital from their current 30 bed institution and move their affiliation from Brigham and Women's to uh, the Beth Israel and Beth Israel Leahy system now I know you probably can't talk about specifics of the overall proposal but I think our podcast listening audience would be interested just to even understand the dynamics and uh, aspects of the review process how will review duties be divided between you guys at the HPC and the Department of Public Health? Who will be some of the ultimate decision makers on whether the overall uh, proposal and its pieces go forward?
1: Yeah, thanks, thanks, Paul. This is clearly a, a really dynamic moment in, in our provider market. We, you know, you can't even open up a newspaper or click on uh, your great blog, Paul, uh, without hearing um, about either new relationships, new affiliations. Uh, at the same time uh, that many are proposing expansions, we're seeing closures of units. So this is a, obviously a very dynamic situation. And what we know and why we care is that changes in the business of healthcare and how business is structured and corporately organized in the state absolutely has an impact on cost quality and access. And that is why, as part of this, you know, initial law and in the HPC, um, we had this innovation of being able to track these changes and being able to evaluate uh, their potential impacts and report on them publicly. So that's a broad statement. Let me say a little bit more about this specific proposal uh, with Dana Farber. You know, I think clearly on its face, this is a significant new proposal. Uh, that would have considerable impacts on, on cost, quality, and access for cancer care. I'm not in a position to to characterize today whether those impacts are uh, positive or negative, increasing or decreasing. Um, but I think on its face, one can say this is a significant new proposal. And I think it will be important for all of the state agencies and, and local agencies to review this proposal very closely. So uh, the parties here, uh, which includes Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and and Dana-Farber, they have filed a notice with the HPC that's uh, regarding their new um, clinical relationship uh, that would support the operation of the new facility. At the same time, uh, the parties, we understand, are working towards a completed filing of a determination of need proposal with the Department of Public Health, and that's you know really for the approval of the construction of the new 300-bed uh, uh, facility and, and other um, technologies. Obviously, these reviews are, are, are kind of fundamentally interconnected. We have one that's about the relationship that will help support the operation of the new facility, and the other is really around kind of the uh, building and creation and expansion of cancer beds in Massachusetts. And so I think between HPC and DPH, appropriate to our different legal authorities and lenses, we're gonna have to kind of think about how we coordinate our reviews here as these move forward. As you know, we do not have the authority to deny a proposed transaction. Um, so when you ask like who is gonna green light this or red light this, that is not uh, the HPC's role. We can conduct you know, a more fulsome comprehensive review, call the cost and market impact review, and if warranted, we can um, refer our report to the attorney general's office. Uh, we can also comment uh, into the determination of need process. Um, and it's really those two agencies, the attorney general's office and the Department of Public Health, that have those greater regulatory tools to uh, consider whether and how uh, the project and the proposal will move forward. But as I said, we're, we're still in our preliminary review stage, um, and so um, don't want to to prejudge where that will land for the HPC,
2: any sense um, of the time frame of when this will this review process and ultimate decisions play out?
1: You know, I suspect uh, we at the HPC uh will be needing to make a decision about whether or not to move to a full cost and market impact review in the next near months. I mean, we we have uh, a thirty day initial time period where we can review the the notice. Oftentimes, we engage in a back and forth with the parties. And, you know, we want to do our due diligence, but I suspect this will be, uh, this will be an important decision early next year.
2: David, let me move you back a little bit to the recommendations that have appeared in the Cost Trends reports now for a couple of years, um, which have included on the provider side, the idea or concept of either absolute price caps for the highest paid or Price growth caps, like for example, they have over hospitals in Rhode Island. Is that something that's still a priority that dealing with the, the pricing structure, getting the legislature to act on it, something is still a priority from the HPC's perspective?
1: Yes, of course it's a priority, Paul. <laughs> um, let's start with the data and facts. We now have over a decade of data and research, which confirms again and again, That provider prices continue to be the primary driver of healthcare spending growth in Massachusetts. In addition, we know that there continues to be significant variation in prices between Massachusetts providers for the same set of services, which can divert resources away from smaller community providers, uh, many of which, as you know, service, you know, vulnerable patient populations and divert those resources towards larger and more well-resourced systems. And let me just put a finer point on, on that really quickly. Since we know that commercial price variation often disadvantages those providers who care for the populations with the greatest health inequities, to me, this is as much of a health equity issue as it is a cost containment and affordability issue. And finally, there was a Congressional Budget Office study from a few years ago, that actually was released just last year, um, the data is from a few years ago, but this study found that Massachusetts had the highest inpatient prices, number one of all states compared to a national average. So yes, addressing uh, excessive provider price levels, price growth, and unwarranted price variation absolutely continues to be among our policy recommendations. And listen, I know that setting you know guardrails to tamp down on excessive price levels and growth. And in so doing, trying to establish some more fairness and equity payments is always going to have some strong philosophical opposition, some stakeholders. And I am sympathetic to that, especially at a time when the delivery system, you know, is it in many ways still recovering from the pandemic and from a, a workforce challenge. But I, I guess I would say, I would challenge us to think that there could be a, a range of options and approaches here such as like only establishing uh, fair pricing limits for commercial prices that are far in excess of what Medicare would pay or from a statewide average, or you could phase these reforms in over a number of years, or maybe the limits are only triggered. Say if an organization couldn't stay below the benchmark. So, you know, I think there's different ways to approach this that, um, could establish more fairness and equity and provider pricing while minimizing perhaps unintended harmful consequences um, on provider financial stability. And we look forward to working with the legislature to flesh out what some of those approaches may be.
0: So David, for a good number of years now, the commission, your board, have been seeking uh, more authority from the legislature in terms of addressing the continuing problems that you see around cost and quality. Do you have any sense um, from your conversations with the legislature that they are more amenable to it now than they've been? Because for the most part, they blow a lot of kisses at the commission and tell people how much they appreciate you, but then we don't see the real action in terms of giving you the authority that you've been telling them for quite a long time you actually need. Any change in the temperature in terms of dealing with the legislature and and the governor's office?
1: Yeah, as I think you know, I take a laugh half full um, viewpoint on this. We we built, I think, an, a really incredible relationship with the legislature. Uh, I, I don't think it's it's just blowing kisses. I think it is a relationship that's built on on trust and our role as a, a trusted, objective, you know, independent policy agency. Um, every year, they um, assign us some new studies and reports on really tricky and important healthcare policy issues, like how do we pay for telehealth? What do we do about our healthcare workforce? How do we approach health disparities? And what's the impact of COVID-19? I could go on and on in terms of all of the different um, questions that the legislature has uh, entrusted the HPC to, to really look into, and. You know, it's not just you know reports and studies. We were a part of the drug pricing reform a legislation that passed a few years ago that allowed for MassHealth to negotiate, um, you know, supplemental rebates. We were, were a part of that law for the first time, gave us authority to do uh, drug pricing reviews. So I see, you know, kind of the long arc of history here, and and these are these are difficult and tricky and thorny issues that don't often happen in the course of one legislative session. But when I look back over the last uh, number of legislative sessions, I see that um, many, if not all of our our recommendations have been included in bills that have been filed, many of which have been passed uh, by either the Senate or the House. And I think this is the year. And this year, I mean this session, next year. (laughs) Because 2024 is the year. Um, We have more than 10 years of data and lessons learned, and it's time to modernize and evolve our approach if we're going to be successful for the next 10 years. And I am optimistic that Massachusetts will take that next step forward in our healthcare journey um, centered on cost containment, affordability, and equity.
0: Thank you, David. One, One final question. So the governor, the legislative leaders, the Health Policy Commission, attorney general all around are totally committed to addressing the problem of health equity that you mentioned earlier. What do you think could be done in the state by the legislature and the administration um, that could actually make a difference? Because it seems like a lot of it is a lot of talk and a lot less um, action. Um, what, What do you think would actually make a difference if you could do this through the Health
1: Policy Commission or wherever. I also hear a lot of that talk, but I also see some momentum here. Um, I see momentum and I am so encouraged by the creation of organizations like the Health Equity Compact, uh, which has brought together healthcare leaders of color from across this Commonwealth who are putting forth um, and advocating for legislation. uh, And beyond that, uh, advocating and, and holding State agency and state governments speak to the fire to make sure that it isn't just rhetoric; that this is this is action. So, um, the development of the health equity compact, I think, is a really, really positive development. One of our key recommendations and one of our um, topics that we talked about at the healthcare cost trends hearing was this idea of of setting um, some health equity targets or goals. Or, you know, we call it a health equity benchmark, but it may not be you know one specific benchmark. But it appears to me that there's an opportunity for us to come together as government, as public and private advocates and stakeholders to um, identify what specific areas we want to focus in on, set targets for improvement, and then measure ourselves and hold ourselves accountable. And that could be things uh, where we know that there are just known disparities, right? Like maternal health care. Okay. Okay let's set ourselves a goal to make sure that there are you know zero negative maternal health outcomes in massachusetts by x date and then you can back in all of the policies and interventions that would help us get there let's look at diabetes or cardiometabolic diseases i think that there is a real opportunity and i i feel this energy and this leadership is going to come from governor healy um, secretary walsh um, to be able to bring together and harness you know, not just all of the healthcare agencies in the Commonwealth, but all of the agencies that also have an impact on health equity, housing, transportation, child care. We know that these are interrelated factors. And I think that leadership that the governor and the secretary will lead us uh, to take action on this area.
2: David, I want to it speak itself. in a final question, since you mentioned it at the beginning of the broadcast, which is pharma spending. We just saw the Senate pass its Pharma bill, the House likely taking something up in 2024. Can we make any progress on spending at a state level through this kind of legislative
1: efforts? Absolutely. We have already taken a step forward. I mentioned the reform that we did a few years ago around allowing for MassHealth to uh, enter into negotiations um, with the backstop of a potential uh, drug uh, value assessment by the Health Policy Commission. Secretary Walsh at the cost trends hearing said that those reforms have generated more than $400 million in savings to the state and to the state Medicaid program over the last few years. That's not insignificant money. And so think if we could extend some of those reforms to the group insurance commission, or to the connector, or even more broadly to the the greater commercial market and be able to drive savings, uh, not just for the state Medicaid program, but for all of the different markets that are struggling with healthcare costs, so yes, you know there is absolutely a need for federal legislative action when it comes to the pharmaceutical sector. But there are also things that states can do. The Senate um, reform is an incredible step in this direction, and I am again not to say the words again, but I am optimistic uh, that the House and the Senate uh, will find compromise on this issue um, and and lead us. And create a structure for us to uh, maintain our leadership on on healthcare cost containment. David Seltz,
0: Executive Director, of Mass Health Policy Commission, joining us for another incredibly vibrant and informative dialogue. Thank you so much for being with us, David. Good oh, luck in you. all your challenges, and happy 2024, when we hope a lot of great things are going to be coming our way. Thanks very much, and thanks to my colleague Paul Haddis. We will be back again next month. Thanks, everybody.